Hey church, good morning. I'm so excited to spend this Sunday morning with you in a virtual environment and uh, excited for you to listen as we preach and proclaim the word of God uh, and worship together. Uh, I know that one of the things that we've really been working hard on is recognizing those of you who are joining us virtually want to keep you in touch with the logistic side of things and what's going on there. Uh, we know that there's just uh, some real limitations to it, right? Uh, I know that you miss time of worship and song together that uh, we can't really take the Lord's Supper together. We did that this uh, weekend in our in-person gatherings and uh, and yet theologically like I don't I don't really think that that's something you do in a virtual environment and so uh, in that uh, we want to try to work hard to keep you connected and look for opportunities uh, during all this crazy COVID time where we can stay uh, well together and connected uh, because we love you and we miss you and we enjoy getting to spend some time online with you. Praise God for the technology to do that. Uh, and so we're excited about watching the Lord continue to work. I uh, want to tell you about one of the things probably, probably most conducive to uh, showing and bringing some relationship back together uh, during the next month or so. Uh, we do an event we have for the last five years uh, called our Drive-Through Nativity. Uh, it's going to happen on Saturday, December 19th and Sunday, December 20th from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, it's going to be really COVID friendly. Uh, it's it's a drive-through. You don't have to get out of your car. Uh, and uh, many of our church people are going to be outside in scenes. Uh, we're going to work hard to keep them socially distanced, kind of outside and, and spaced out uh, where there's a good, uh, safe environment for them to gather together between 6 and 8 p.m. Uh, so maybe you want to serve in that if you're, you want to be outside for a couple hours. Uh, but if you don't feel comfortable with that, what I really am encouraging you to do is commit yourself to either on Saturday or Sunday evening between 6 and 8 to drive out and drive through. Get to see some people. Uh, we'll wave to you. We'll say hi to you. We'll try to catch up a little bit with you. Uh, I promise you we won't, we won't stuff ourselves inside of your car or breathe on you too bad or anything like that. We'll kind of keep those and maintain those standards and know what is, is good. Uh, if you're looking for a way to serve in a practical context, uh, here's, here's what we would really love. Uh, we're looking for some people who would be willing to make uh, some cookies. We give out cookies as a part of this event every single year. Uh, here's, here's the difference this year. Uh, we need every single one of them individually wrapped, uh, like in a saran wrap or a black bag. Uh, and we, we want you to do that. Uh, if you would be interested in serving in that way, uh, go ahead and email myself or Katie, that's Nick at FBC Darlington or Katie at FBC Darlington, uh, and we can get you on the list and make sure that we have uh, some cookies because we're going to give out cookies and hot chocolate to a bunch of people as they come through this. So we're looking forward to that. We'd love to see you as a part of that and uh, are, are really thankful for this next few minutes as we worship the Lord together uh, in the hearing of and working through the truth of his scripture uh, as we now enter into December uh, and Advent, Christmas season and think about the coming of the birth of Christ. Uh, I pray that we're a people who are rejoicing in all things and in this very unique year and unique Christmas season uh, that you would be considering daily thinking about uh, the good news of the Lord and the glory that it is that we have a Savior who did not sit far off but came to earth for us. Praise his name for that. We love you. We hope to see you soon. Heavenly Father, 
I pray that you would guide and direct my words uh, as I speak them tonight. And, and the hearing, the ears of all of us as we might hear them. I, I pray for soft and, and gentle words, though courageous and true to the Scripture. And I, I pray for uh, discerning and compassionate ears as they hear truths that are, are difficult and controversial and uh, hard. And so as we navigate a text in Scripture that is uh, not one that we might all sit heartily with complete agreement over, and certainly in our culture, uh, pokes on some really difficult things and societal circumstances, that we would be a people who proclaim the truth boldly, and that you would help us endure and walk through that with a patience and love for one another that seeks to really understand it on the deepest level, knowing that we desire to be a people who know truth, and that truth is found in your word. And so help us discern what your word says this evening. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, um, we set out with the letter uh, of 1 Peter, his letter to several churches. Uh, we've said over the past several weeks that this letter was uh, really designed to uh, introduce a concept of joy and rejoicing amongst believers uh, in this world during times where they would be distressed and endure the very trials and difficulties of life. In particular, the people that he writes to are enduring and dealing with many trials, ones that we maybe have not yet experienced in the fullness of our lives at any point in time. And so in that, he says to them that they would be a people who greatly rejoice during these trials. And so out of that, we've said that Peter's going to walk forward defining some of the concepts context and circumstances around these trials that the early believers were facing that still apply some 2,000 years later to us in some different ways and uh, in, in doing so, kind of giving us the principles of what it looks like to be, as a believer, one who greatly rejoices in all circumstances. And so in that, uh, we knew kind of coming into that, that there were parts of this text that today in 21st century culture uh, and taking that this year in particular in a particularly divisive election cycle and in a particular particularly divisive uh, dealing with uh, pandemic virus and all of the politicized nature of that and dealing with a particularly growingly divided and secularized culture that these particular verses that we're going to look at tonight and next week are going to be ones that are um, sensitive, right? That's, and maybe that's the wrong word for it. Maybe controversial would be a better word for it. Uh, in particular, we're going to find tonight, I think, some verses that both we as the church have kind of an initial nature to press back upon and try to work through how would we discern those in wisdom as a believer, as well as some verses that we're going to find that as a culture might be taken out of a poor context and used and applied in some ways to really uh, press down and press against Christianity as, as ultimately being a bad thing. And I'll add to that that 
uh, the high likelihood is either this week or next week or both weeks as I try to preach through those things and talk about some of the practical things that they mean for us, uh, there's a good chance that I'm going to say some things that you disagree with and that potentially even offend you. I still love you. And here's my commitment out of that. My covenant to you and and my desire as a pastor and as someone who's going to stand in a pulpit preaching is that I would courageously and boldly desire to proclaim, first and foremost, even at the potential of offending you, the truth in Scripture as I best understand it and see it and interpret it according to the Word of God. Your covenant back to me ought to be, and I can't force this on you, but I'm just I'm encouraging you that this is what it ought to be, is that if you disagree or you're offended or you think, man, he is way off on that one, that we would bear with one another in patience, you can talk to me about those things. Not right now, right? Don't raise your hand. Uh, I won't respond. But you can buy me lunch this week, take out, apparently, and we'll spend some time actually discussing it and walking through that in patience and in love for one another. Uh, one of the great tragedies in the American church is frequently people visit churches that hear and listen to things that they agree with. And when those things leave and they find something that they disagree with, instead of working through those things for the sake of the unity of the body, they just leave that church, right? And, and I would add, in our Midwestern kind of passive-aggressive culture, that's emphasis emphasized even further than it is in other parts of the U.S., and so you have a very consumer-driven model. And so my encouragement is especially, and this isn't just for this next couple weeks, but whenever we're dealing with texts that are sensitive, controversial, or difficult in nature and walking through them, uh, that you would be someone who listens well, and then on the things you disagree with, that you would have enough courage to say, hey, I really have a different take on this. Could you further explain this to me? You can text me. You can email me. You can call me. You can get together with me. All of those things would be great, uh, and we can kind of walk through and show where some of the scriptures will go in those places, uh, and so that's, that's kind of the precursor. I'll try to concisely reiterate that again next week, because next week is even a more controversial subject than this week um, because here's where Peter's going. First, first Peter chapter 2, out of what we looked at last week, uh, a verse that ends in his encouragement to us as believers to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Everybody. So as we look upon all those who don't know Christ, that we would be a people of particularly excellent behavior so that they might glorify God in the day of visitation based on the way that we respond. The question then from there is, what does it look like to be a people of excellent behavior, especially as we look circumstantially at our um, relationships on this earth? And over the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Peter's going to deal with three different types of relationships. He's going to deal with authority figures, he's going to deal with masters and slaves, and he's going to deal with spouses, in particular wives. And the key word in all three of those relationships is going to be this, submit. And, And here's the thing, that is not in any context when applied to you a popular word in our culture. Amen? It's just not. And and the reason is because 
by our human sin nature, we choose and desire in everything inside of us, outside of the Holy Spirit working in us, to not be people of submission, but people of idolatrous, self-lording authority in our life. Do we not? I think from the get-go, as little children, our desire is to be in control of our own life. I think about, uh, Dave mentioned as, as we began the sermon, right, that, that our kids almost always give us joy, uh, and I've been at my house this week, right, and so I uh, will heartily disagree and, and know that sometimes they give us a great deal of joy, and the times when most frequently that is kind of pushed against is this constant warfare, uh, if you will, between my nine-year-old, my seven-year-old, my five-year-old, and myself about who is in charge, right? Who's the authority in our lives? In fact, there's a couple things that repeatedly get mentioned in my house as a form of correction, teaching, and discipline, uh, phrases that we come back to over and over and over again. First, we define obedience. We say, what is obedience? And they will answer you mostly begrudgingly because it's most often when they're trying to be disobedient, it is doing what you're told, when you're told, with the right attitude. Obedience is a recognition of submission in and of itself. The second piece of this that again and again and again gets mentioned in my house is, and oftentimes again begrudgingly because oftentimes it comes in a time where this is not being displayed, uh, but I ask my kids with frequency, who is in charge of your attitude? And they will, after some moaning and groaning, respond, I am, right? Because, because here is what submission, as it's defined in the biblical sense, ultimately means. Submission would be an accepting or a yielding voluntarily to another in both action and attitude. Why is that so important? Because, because here's, here's why. That means that as believers, we control whether or not we submit. In fact, consistently and frequently throughout the scriptures, we are commanded to submit ourselves to authorities. We're going to see it in just a minute in the scripture, to slaves and masters, to one another, uh, to put ourselves, yield our will to another, and that it would be something that we do voluntarily, and it would be something that we do both in action and in attitude, right? Obedience to doing what you're told, when you're told. And then we added that proposition at the end because here's what I know about every seven-year-old now is that you could obey and still maintain a defiant attitude that proves that while you're being obedient, you're not actually being obedient. Amen? And so, and so out of this, uh, I think it's helpful and appropriate for us to understand that Peter is defining in this or giving us a recognition of what it looks like to be a people of excellent behavior and is going to come back to this term again that we would submit or be submissive, that we would choose to yield our will to someone else, that it would be in our heart a laying down or accepting of the will of another. And so uh, under that definition, here's what I want to do tonight. I, I just want to work through uh, a few questions about said submission. Who do we submit to? When do we submit to them? Why do we submit to them? 
And then, and then how do we actually do that? All right, so, so if you're a note taker, you just throw those categories down. Who, when, how, why, why, how. We'll go that way. And we'll walk through each of these. So I want to read a big chunk of the text, and then we're going to break it down uh, into a couple different sections. Starting with 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, or some of your translations, translations might say, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So Peter, Peter looks at two relationships and really connects this into chapter 3. He's going to look at a third relationship in wives submitting to, in particular, unbelieving husbands. Uh, but by the nature of that text, I, th- I think we want to reserve a whole week for that and deal with that next week. And uh, I could just keep you here two hours, but I don't think you'd be super happy with me. And so out of that, I want to look at two relationships. Who do we submit to? Peter's going to note, in particular, to this Uh, crowd this audience again not one church but many churches meaning Peter's written this in a general sense as the prescriptive behavior to believers that they would submit themselves to a couple people verse 13 for the Lord's sake to every human institution now he goes on to define what those human institutions are by example kings as the one in authority, or governors sent by him as an authority, uh, to the masters of the servants or the slaves, uh, in this that anyone who is one in authority would be one that we submit ourselves or yield ourselves to. Now, I think the first reaction in today's world uh, is twofold, and and we're going to deal with both of them. One uh, is that we look in a time where uh, we, we sit at a more divided political nation than uh, maybe at any time in our lifetimes, that we sit with less trust in the governmental authorities, in the system of governance, than maybe any time in our life and background, and we sit with a great deal of controversy about the decisions that our governing authorities make while we get to participate in them in a democratic system. And so you go, well, well when does it make sense to not submit to that? Uh, not only that, let's note that several times in Scripture, those who do not 
yield in obedience to ruling authorities are not only approved by God, but praised by God for not yielding to said authority. Let me give you a couple examples. In fact, the first one, Peter himself is one who has done this in the past. In the book of Acts, in chapter 4, here's what happens. Early on, following the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the Holy Spirit falls upon the believers, and they begin to preach and proclaim the name of Jesus. And as they do, thousands of people in Jerusalem are getting saved. Now, as this is happening, it is terrifying to the religious leaders at that time who have now begin to lose some of the grasp of the authority that they once had. And so out of fear of losing this authority, they're trying to find a way to silence and to cease the apostles from proclaiming the name of Jesus. Not only that, but in Acts chapter 3, here's what happens. Peter and John, two of the early apostles, are walking into the temple. There happens to be a guy laying by the gate of the temple who is lame, the Bible says, from birth, that he can't walk. And he is there begging for alms and consistently has been there where he's been seen by the bulk of people for a long, long time. Uh, Peter and John do this really cool thing. Uh, they, they kind of like let him down in disappointment and then raise him up literally to walk and leap and praise God. They go, hey, uh, bro, look at us. We don't have any money, but watch this. Get up and walk. The Bible says he stands up. He is walking and leaping and praising God into the temple, declaring it. The people want to know what this is about. And Peter and John, don't miss this. And, and think about this. Anytime you see miraculous things happen in the scripture, it's not for the sake of the end being healing and restoration or uh, prosperity. It's for the sake of the gospel going forth. And so Peter and John don't miss an opportunity. They proclaim the gospel of Jesus. The leaders in the temple get angry. They don't know what to do about it. And so they take them and they put them in jail. They beat them. They bring them before the council. And the instruction to them is, listen, you want us to let you go, here's, here's what we need you to do. Don't speak any longer to any man in this name. The name they're talking about is Jesus. It said, uh, when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. As an authority, this is the command. And then the Bible says this, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They then are given out to leave that place because the ruling authorities just simply don't know what to do. And in their disobedience, the church comes together, rejoices, and just a few verses later, the Bible says that the whole place and all of the people were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness, that God has a hearty endorsement of this disagreement. Uh, you could go back, let me give you another couple of examples. Uh, you go back all the way early on in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. And if you remember, as Exodus begins, God's people are slaves in Egypt under a harsh and oppressive rule. And as the Egyptian pharaoh, the king, sees the people growing and multiplying, he wants to get rid of them, and so he instructs some midwives to 
kill every boy that is born of a Hebrew woman. And do you remember what they do? Not only do they disobey said command, but then they lie to the king. They say, no, these, these women have babies, and they do it quickly. They just shoot them out of there, and we can't even get to them. That's like in the commentary notes, uh, that sound. Uh, so, so in that, they have these babies. We can't get to them, and so there's nothing that we can do about it. They lie to the king. They disobey the authority that is given and set before them. And not only is this not punished, but it is praised by God, and God highly esteems and blesses them for it. Right? Maybe, maybe some of the most known examples of this uh, happen in the book of Daniel. You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and then Daniel in the lion's den. In Daniel chapter 6, in fact, this is, this is what happens in Daniel in the lion's den. And, and I want to point this out because I think this is going to lead us into that second question. Because the tension between these two questions then, if, if we're to obey anyone in authority, kings and governors and rulers, even if those rulers are evil, even if those rulers are oppressive, even if those rulers are wrong, is sometimes combated in Scripture. Sometimes the Scripture would teach against such a thing. In fact, Daniel uh, hears the document that is put forth by King Darius to only worship and only pray to him alone. And it says, when he knew that it was signed, he entered his house, he continued kneeling on his knees, and three times a day praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. They throw him into a lion's den as he disobeys authority. So, so the question then is, okay, so when is that the appropriate response? And when, when is rebellion, when is disobedience, when is uh, not submitting to the authorities that be the appropriate response? Well, Here's, here's what you maybe don't know. Daniel uh, lives through the night in the lion den, right? If you have uh, been a part of the Sunday school story, the king, uh, Darius, actually liked Daniel quite a bit, frustrated by it. Uh, in the morning after his night of distress, he opens the den and calls out to Daniel. And here's, here's the million-dollar question. You know what Daniel's first words are? O king, live forever. Daniel's first response was to be obedient and submissive to authority for anything that wasn't in direct contradiction to his serving of the Lord. I think, I think by that response, we get kind of some of our answer when we say, okay, so when do we submit to any and all authorities. It wasn't for the sake of personal comfort. It wasn't for the sake of personal preference. It wasn't for the sake of personal gain. It wasn't for the sake of personal protection. It was simply for the sake of the gospel being proclaimed and going forward, which means, I think, for us that when we ask when we ought to submit to these authorities, uh, it's not just in situations where they are good or right or justified, but rather it's in any situation that doesn't hinder us from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ or the principles of the gospel. In fact, uh, Peter says this in several words as he begins to talk about it. Look down at verse 18 with me of 1 Peter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, 
not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If a person, for the sake of conscience towards God, bears up under sorrows when he is suffering unjustly. Then he, he goes on, uh, not only then, but in verse 20 to say, if you suffer and patiently endure it, it finds favor with God. So Peter's going to say that you could be one who is submitting in obedience even to an unreasonable and an unjust ruler and suffering for it, and it could still be finding favor for God. In fact, uh, what we've said over the last couple weeks is Peter doesn't write this in a cultural vacuum as he says to kings and governors and ruling authorities, think about who Peter is referring to at this time. The current emperor of Rome is a guy named Nero. Nero is as evil as it comes, though he would be seceded by an emperor Domitian who's even more evil and opposed to Christians than Nero was. However, Nero is said to have burned down Rome, killing thousands of his own people so that he could rebuild the city to the demeanor and way that he wanted to and then blamed it on Christians because he wanted to get rid of the people who would not worship him and so rounds them up, burns them on stakes, feeds them to lions and has no qualms about it. Not only that, Nero is the end of a line of emperors in Rome who had been completely perverse and wrong in so many ways. Uh, he follows a guy named Claudius. Uh, and when I say follows, I mean he came to the throne after his mom murdered Claudius in his sleep. And Claudius was a harsh, oppressive, and unjust ruler in himself who followed Caudillo, who was a harsh and unjust and oppressive ruler in himself, uh, happy and famous for incest and for killing his own mother and his own brothers so that his throne could be protected. It was frequent and common in that time to see rulers, governors, and authority figures as unjust and evil. And Peter says we ought to be a people who submit to them, and, and not just when they're doing right, but when they are doing wrong. So, so I think that pushes us then to the follow-up question of why? why? Why would we submit, yield, have an attitude of yielding to those who would oppose uh, the basic morals of the Bible, that would oppose the basic, as we understand it, will of God, that would oppose the things that we see in line and consistent with Christianity. Why would we do such a thing? Here's, here's how Peter's going to weave this in again and again and again and again. Submit yourselves, this is verse 13, for the Lord's sake. Here's, here's his answer. Why, why do you submit? Nothing to do with them. Why, why do you submit at your workplace to a boss who is not righteous, is not just, has not uh, received their position by any merit of their own, makes harsh and foolish and unwise decisions? For the Lord's sake. Why, why do you submit as a citizen of the United States to a government that you maybe you don't agree with or maybe you're frustrated by or maybe you think is wrong in so many ways? Not for them, for the Lord's sake. Why do, why do you submit in your household? Why do you submit in contexts where you have authority over you and you don't trust said authority? It's not for them. It's for the Lord's sake. In fact, 
Peter knows that this is against kind of our natural inclination. And so over and over and over again, he's going to weave this in as the why reason as he walks through this. Look at verse 15. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, that, that's equated with the submission that he just talked about, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. That ultimately, when you submit to human authority and institution, you submit to God. You present yourself as a servant of God. And he's getting to the point that submission is your conscious, your spirit field yielding to authority, not a oppression, right? Because you ought to be someone who acts as a free man, and in your freedom, you're laying down your will for the sake of the Lord. He goes on, and in verse 17, it's going to say, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God in honoring the king. Verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but those who are unreasonable, for this finds favor. If For the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when he is suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin you're harshly treated but you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. And then then Peter closes with this idea as he continues to hammer home why we ought to be a people who submit ourselves, who don't insist on our will and our way, but rather Yield that because it finds favor with God. That the Lord's sake is that we would be a people who lay down our preferences for the sake of his glory. And that we would yield in all things for the sake of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't doesn't mean that we uh, don't have opinions. That doesn't mean that we don't think through things. It doesn't mean that we don't try to proclaim or persuade or talk about things that might be good or best. Certainly those are the case. We'll kind of dig into that a little bit deeper next week. Uh, But ultimately, that above and superseding all those things is that we and Peter's calling to the churches that he's writing to to do this is we are meant to be a people who are so center-focused on the gospel that we would be willing to lay down anything else so that we could have more opportunity to proclaim and glorify the good news of Jesus Christ. Why do we submit? We do it for the Lord's sake. And so then then finally, where we're finished tonight is is how do you do that? How, How do we walk in submission to the Lord for his sake? to all human institutions, to all human authorities, even those we might disagree with. Well, watch what he does. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving, you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. Here's, here's the answer. How do we do it? By following in the steps of Jesus. That we would be a people who submit following in the steps of Jesus. Look at, look at what he's going to describe as the example of Christ. 
from Isaiah 53, he quotes, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That we're meant to be a people who yield our will because our Lord and Savior Christ yielded his. That though he could have resisted, though he could have rejected, he went to a cross to be wounded and ultimately to die so that we might die to sin and be made alive to righteousness. That by his wounds we are healed. That by his broken body and his shed blood you and I in faith in him alone are given salvation and so uh, here's how we're going to close tonight we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together the Bible describes Jesus uh, sitting down and defining this ordinance this institution in the church as a way that we might remember above all things, that we're meant to be a people who see Christ as the example and remember his work on the cross as our redemption. That we would be a people who recognize that there was no deceit found in his mouth, that he committed no sin, that he did not revile in return, and that he suffered, though uttering no threats. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He says, uh, Paul, the apostle, recalling it, says that in the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and said, this is my body as he broke it. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink this in remembrance of me because in this bread and in this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so uh, here's what I want to do. As our young people come back in, uh, I, I want you to spend some time with me in prayer, in examination. And, and here's the, the question that, that I want you to think about and pray on as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper and remember the finished work of Jesus. Am I one who is submitted to Christ? Have, have I yielded in action and attitude my will, my life to Christ? And, and so I'm going to give you some time, a few seconds in prayer, in silence, to simply work through that question in your mind and heart. And if the answer is no, here's, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. It will be Yes, from this point forward, if you desire it to be, you just simply lay down your will and place faith in the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. I submit myself to Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now, and I'll close this together.
Father, I pray that we together are a people who find ourselves submitted to you. That, that it bears implications in so many ways, in so many parts of our lives. And uh, the difficulty of, of the Christian life is walking in wisdom, understanding what that looks like in all things. And, and certainly in the circumstances we exist in, it's a delicate and difficult walk we face. And yet, yet above all of it, the heart and the attitude that we desire to display is one that follows in your steps, submitted to you, remembering that you laid down your life for us. So pray that in, in faith we remember well and that as we uh, take this, this sign, this ordinance, this act of remembrance, that it would be in a recognition of your laying down, your submitting your life for us so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we're made alive in you. We pray it in Jesus' name.